you. Well, we've, uh, we've been working our way through the Lord's Prayer in the last few weeks, and um, I'm excited to present this morning's uh, next section to you. One thing that I am constantly encouraged about when it comes to speaking the Word of God is that what I actually speak I know resonates on some level with our culture because we, as humans, are all looking for the same thing. You know, we believe as Christians that God has placed a a mark of Him upon our lives. It says in Ecclesiastes that we all have eternity in our hearts. We're all striving as a culture. We're striving towards something better. And we have this echo of of what we know that things the way that they are, that things could be better, that we want more peace, we want more clarity, we want more freedom, we want more strength, uh, and we, we want more thankfulness in our lives. And, and this is what the culture is looking for, and they look in different ways for it. But it's also very much what God's plan for us is, because that is God's design for us. It's His vision for us. And so I've been speaking the way through the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to read it together in just a second. But everything about the Lord's Prayer, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is not so much, it is asking God for specific things in our lives. In fact, commentators would say that there is no fear or, or ask or request or need that we have as personal and on a, on a kind of personal level, but also on a world level that is not covered by the Lord's Prayer in some way. So it's an all-encompassing, powerful prayer that can be prayed in its simplicity, just working through the verses, or you can take a verse a day or a section a day. There's all sorts of different ways that you can use the Lord's Prayer. As Jesus said, that pray like this, that he said, here's a, here's a way in which you can pray. But it's not just about asking God. It's, as I said a few weeks ago, it's about aligning our life with the way of God, retuning. And I use the illustration of, of how, you, you know, the set notes, E, A, D, G, B, E on a guitar, that no matter what you think E might sound like, and you might have it tuned one way, well, E is set, and so our lives need retuning into alignment with what God's notes are for our life. And that looks like the heavenly fatherly love of God, our Father who is in heaven, trusting in Him for our daily needs, not my will, but your will be done joyfully seeing God's purpose in our lives. So all these different ways. Today, we're going to hone into a, uh, an incredibly pertinent part of the verse, uh, which is in verse 12. But let's, let's read uh, up till uh, verse 13. And maybe we can read it out loud together. Uh, the words will appear on the screen behind me. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 6. Our Father. Let's read it together. Our Father. In heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We can stop there this week. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 7 and verse 10. Let's just read that. I'll read this to you. It says, For godly grief, sorrow, conviction, or guilt produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We're going to come to that verse in just a minute. 
See, if I was going to give today a title, I would say this, that this, this sermon, this message, what I want you to leave fully aware of and believing the truth of is this, is that forgiveness, sorry, freedom comes from forgiveness. Freedom comes from forgiveness. See, forgiveness is a profoundly important subject. Indeed, one of the leading British mental uh, hospital, the head of one of the British mental institutions said this, if I could assure all of my patients of complete forgiveness, I could send 50% of them home. You see, needing forgiveness implies something that's quite obvious, that we've done something wrong. Or we need to forgive because wrong has been done to us. So we're going to work through what this actually means because if you look at that verse uh, that it says there's this forgiving others seems to be tied to gaining forgiveness for ourselves. And that, that's a bit of a troubling concept for us as evangelical born-again Christians. And so we're going to get to what that means. But I really want to reinforce the desperate need that we all have as a culture for forgiveness. The desperate need we have as a culture for freedom. Where does that freedom come from? And how this verse actually is all about Jesus communicating freedom to us. That forgiveness leads to freedom. So the first point is this. The the problem of guilt. The problem of guilt. Now, some of you may not know what you believe and you're exploring Jesus and Christianity or uh, maybe some of you have been Christians a long, long time. There's one thing that, that, that is communicated from our culture is this, is that we really don't want to talk about sin or doing things wrong or the stuff that, that we know, the issues that we have in our lives. Because there is a, there's an idea that if you highlight those things, then you're just making the person feel worse. You know, why would Jesus highlight this in the, in the verse? Isn't it going to increase the guilt and the shame. Let's just move on. Let's forgive and forget. You know, let's just live life free. We don't need to dwell on the things that we do wrong. In fact, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, there was a strong push in church culture not to talk about sin, not to talk about guilt, not to talk about shame, not to talk about the issues that we all struggle with because it makes people feel bad. And people who feel bad don't like coming to church to be made to feel more bad. And so, Church has got rid of it. The problem with that is this. You get rid of sin and acknowledging sin, you also then need to get rid of the cross because the only reason we need the cross is because of the sin. You see, our our culture struggles, so where's the answer? Where is the answer? Where does this freedom come from? So when I talk about wrongs, I could take you right back to Genesis and we could do a big study and We've talked to this a lot in this church about where sin comes from. But I want to talk more about the feeling that sin leaves us with. Whether it's big sins, what we would call those things that are obvious sins. Those things in our world, in our culture that are just plain wrong. And we know that they're wrong. And, but also there's those, I like to call it the, the it doesn't count list. Those it doesn't count sins. Well, you know. Everybody does that, so doesn't really count, does it? You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to you know, cheat a little bit because it doesn't really count, or I'm going to download this illegally because it doesn't really count. You know, there's, and you, you actually start looking at your life, and you start seeing that this doesn't count list 
is pretty, pretty long if you're not careful. So what happens with those sins? Does God go, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It doesn't count. It won't have any effect. It doesn't change anything. So a few weeks ago, I, I, was, uh, I went away for a couple of days just by myself to pray and study. Actually, it was through this to take some time to think through this series and, uh, and I took my own coffee. I'm, I'm quite, quite, those of you who know me quite well know I like my coffee. And, and you know, I have, a, uh, I have a, a, uh, an AeroPress and uh, I could become a, uh, a sales rep, I think, for AeroPress because I know a few of you have bought them after I've been so enthusiastic about them and take my AeroPress. And I had to get some milk. And so I used the milk and I was traveling home. Apart from what I didn't do is I didn't secure the milk well in the back of my car. Now, for those of you who know, it's the worst thing to spill in your car. How many of you have spilt milk in your car? Yes, and doesn't that beautiful, moldy smell just stay in your car forever? I mean, it just is the worst thing to spill in your car. So I was telling my, uh, Sarah was like, she was, she was on it. I love my wife. She's like, right, she's got... She's got baking soda, she's got, you know, she's got concoctions going on. It's like Harry Potter at home, you know. It's like, we'll put this in the back of the car, it'll get rid of the smell. And it didn't get rid of the smell. So one of the other things that I'm very grateful for, and it does cause some amusement in our house, is that Sarah loves to clean the cars at the, at the car wash across the way from Starbucks in the mission there. But she is extremely obsessed with the amount of money that kind of, how many of you use that? You know where it just kind of starts counting up how much money you're using? Do you, you, you know what I'm talking about? Thank you, Brad. It's one of you with me. You know, that, that is just kind of one. You've used this amount of soap. And it just, the longer you use the car wash, the more money you spend. It's amazing how quickly Sarah cleans our cars. And it's not like we can't afford it. It's just that there's this, I think it's the Glaswegian mentality. I'm going to get this whole car done for a buck fifty. Go. But the thing is, it comes home with this smeared, because I have a black car, if she does my car, and then she'll say this, yeah, but it, it's better than it was. It's good, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to criticize, because, I mean, bless her, she, she did it. But we went together, and I actually naively thought it would be fun. We'll, we'll, we'll clean the back of the car, the inside of our car together. It wasn't fun, not even a little bit. Because she went into, right. She kept on telling me every five cents, You've got 30 cents left, Glenn. Let's speed this up. And I'm scrubbing. It's frantic. I'm stressed. And the smell didn't go. To see, it, and you know what? We all have spillages. We all have things that go wrong. We all have stuff that we try and cover up and fragrance out and clean up ourselves. But the, the reality is, like spilt milk in a hot car, and it's just going to get worse when we get into summer, it just lingers. The aroma of hurt, the aroma of bitterness, the aroma of shame and guilt just sits there. And we hope that other people can't notice it. We hope that people get into the lives of the cars of our lives and go, wow, this smells really sweet. But it doesn't. Because every time one of my kids has got in the car in the last few weeks, they've gone, oh, Dad, it stinks in here. Thank you. Praise the Lord. So what do we do? We, we shift blame. Well, it's their fault. If it wasn't for that, then this wouldn't be the way it is. We point to others being worse. Well, if you think I'm bad and my doesn't count list, you should see this person's list, forgetting that God doesn't compare us to other people. He compares 
as to himself. And this separation from God that the Bible speaks so clearly about is so prevalent in our lives that God can have nothing to do with sin. And there's this gaping gap between where we're at and where God needs us to be. And what do we do to get past that? And we try and fill it and we clean it and we distract ourselves and we point blame and all the time still smelling the aroma of hurt and bitterness and shame and guilt. So I'm going to make a sweeping statement that I want to prove to you for the rest of the time, and it's this. There is no way to deal with the wrongs and the guilt. There's no way to get complete freedom except to go to God in repentance. That's quite the statement. That you can't deal with past hurts by yourself. The aroma lingers. And those of you and those of us who are old enough will know that the trajectory doesn't improve when it comes to bitterness and anger and upset and hurt and issues and challenge. When you're younger, you think, oh, well, this will just fade away, and it doesn't. So what do you do with that? Well, I would believe totally there is no way to deal with the wrong and get complete freedom except to go to God in repentance. What does our culture do without God? Well, it does something that I would strongly encourage. Maybe it includes going to see a really good counselor. And a good counselor will help you see the issue. And then what? Then what? They'll point it out, then what? Maybe they'll give you some tools and strategies to help you deal with the issues. But you still have the issue. So I spoke to a really good counselor who comes to this church. Tracy, I've already feeling guilty about making fun of. I'm sorry, Tracy. And I spent a lot of time on the phone with her this week because I wanted to make sure what I was saying was true. And those of you who know Tracy, and she's very humble, we're very grateful for, to have her in our church, um, has, is, is one of the most recognized and certainly has huge favor and blessing upon her, her ministry of counseling as well as being brought into the most awful situations. In fact, the first thing that Tracy said when I asked her some questions was this. She said, well, she said, let me just think about all the murder cases I've been involved in. And I went, okay. I'll just let you think about that. So I, I, I refer to somebody who really has seen a side of life that I, I want to listen to what they think when it comes to counseling. And this is what Tracy said. I'm, this is pretty much quoted. She said this, when I counsel someone who isn't a Christian, I can take them to a good level of healing through therapy. However, we always get to the place where I wish I could bring in Jesus so that he would finish it off, and it grieves me. That's what she said. Right, Trace? That pretty much. Did I do a good job? Transcribing. I wish I could bring Jesus in to finish the job. See, that's what Jesus was talking about in this prayer when he says... You, you need to, you, you, that, that God would forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. That you cannot get free from the issue without Jesus Christ. There's always a point where you can get tools, and I know Tracy uses the word strategies, different ways in which you can help and, and still function with the issue, the challenges, the hurt that you have done, the hurt that has been done to you, but there is always a point where you will not get that true freedom that 
freely, I believe, and the Scripture says, and, and, and a renowned counsel would say, you can only get through Jesus Christ. So I, I want you to really place this visually in your mind. And so I'm going to ask uh, Ryan uh, to come up. This is like old times, Ryan. Ryan uh, and I used to do a lot of ministry together the years past. He's now planting a church on the west side, which we're very excited about. And uh, so Ryan, let's just say Ryan represents us. And then under this box, so I didn't tell you about this bit, mate. Some weights. (laughs) And a chain. And a lock. Oh, yeah, don't worry about that. We've done enough together. You can trust me. Okay, so I just want to imagine. <laughs> Take his glasses off. Smart guy. So I, I was a pastor of a young adult group in the Lower Mainland for quite a few years, and Ryan was my assistant. So this is why he's bracing himself. So here's what this picture is about. I just want to make sure this is secure. So I don't want you getting anywhere. good? So we have a set of weights here. So I want you to imagine, because literally this is what it feels like to be carrying the issues and the challenges and the difficulty and the sin in our life. So I could ask Ryan now, so if Ryan, you come over here and just gently, you know, it probably will move a little bit because it's a smooth surface, but I'm going to guess it's pretty hard. Whoa, okay. Calm down. And then as we get through life, we actually find that the weight doesn't decrease, it increases. Good man, wow. You're so physical. It starts off with a small weight, a small issue, a small challenge, a small sin, if you like, that you can actually deal with the shame and the guilt yourself. But as life goes on, we start the does not count list and the different things start pounding on. Maybe there's just something profound that has happened in your life that has taken you from a small hurt to a big hurt because somebody has done something to you or you've been witness to something or you have done something and this thing just gets heavier and heavier until eventually it's incredibly difficult to move. So Ryan, I could say, Ryan, just go for a run. Don't. But just go for a run. He's, he's going to face plant so quick. He's going to slam into the ground really, really quickly. See, what Ryan could do is he could surround himself with other people that have got equal amounts of weight. He could just hide in the crowd. Maybe he goes to a help group. Maybe he says, you know, hi, my name's Ryan, and I've got a load of weight. And everybody go, well, hi, Ryan, welcome. I do too. Let's figure out ways that we can figure this thing out together so that you can function in life. But maybe Ryan's heart is, is that he can just surround himself with people with similar amounts of weight, similar amounts of shame and guilt, and that he would just be able to just blend in with the crowd. It's not so obvious. Maybe Ryan just wants to make himself look so great, and let's be honest, that people aren't going to notice the weight. Maybe Ryan hits the gym every day. He gets addicted to that. Because if people could just see how good I look, they're not going to notice what I carry every day. Maybe Ryan distracts himself with activity so that he can try and forget that this happens. But every time he tries to run, every time he tries to get free, and, and Tracy uses the word stuck when you, she's already said it once this, this morning. If you get stuck, then what? See, Ryan could bury it. 
but this is still going to be intact. He could try and do it himself. He's not going to be able to do it because he can't do it. He'll take it with him into his relationships, his friendships. They might not notice this for a bit, but eventually this is going to come obvious again. So what do you do? You go to a counselor, and the counselor's going to go, Hey, Ryan, that's your problem, pal. Right there. And Ryan's going to go, Yeah, I, I know. Or maybe he's like, oh, I didn't know. Thank you. What do I do about it? Well, I can give you some tools and strategies. I'm quoting Tracy to give you a certain level of freedom and therapy. You're going to be able to function. But hey, for you to truly deal with this, the chain as we have sung, thank you, Josh, this morning, and I didn't tell him this was my illustration, needs to be broken. That's what Jesus is talking about. You ain't going to get that anywhere other than from God. Because it needs a change of heart. It needs a miracle that this world cannot provide. That is what Christianity is about. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of God sending his son to come and break this chain forever. The separation gets closed in. There's a relationship, an acceptance, a love, and a passion from God that you cannot get in the world. And no matter how much makeup you put on this, it's still going to sag because gravity always wins. Life will always win. So what do you do? I can't escape. I need rescuing. There you go, mate. Sarah, you've got the key. So what do we do from that, Sarah? Key? I put it on your uh, key ring. It's all right. Genuine panic. I have a key. Oh, hang on. Give us a minute. Although it did work. There you go. There you go, mate. Thank you, Ryan. Oh, hip flexors. I love the face. Your face was like... I can't escape. I need rescuing. So let's... This is what we do. We self-medicate. We self-medicate. We use alcohol, we'll use drugs, we'll use sex, we'll use relationships, we'll use business, we'll use activity, we'll use fitness, we'll use leisure, we'll just throw ourselves into life in the hope that this will disappear. All the time it's getting bigger and bigger. Do you see yourself in that, friend? I do. I see myself in this. I saw myself in this. There's no way to deal with guilt and the wrong except to go to God in repentance. Number two, Jesus Christ teaches us there's also a motivation for repentance. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I really want to very quickly just touch on the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is not godly. In fact, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. But conviction is godly. Conviction is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Right now, I'm believing and prayed for this morning that some of us, if not all of us, in some way feel conviction. That's a good, healthy Christian place to be because it's the Holy Spirit saying, you need repentance for that. You need freedom from that. You need forgiveness from that. The weight is there. You need victory over that. That's conviction. Like a good dad, a good parent that says, hey, let's work on this. Let's deal with this. Condemnation is a tool of the enemy of the world, and it produces death. 
It sits on you. It's, it's shame-filled. And, you know, we need to know the difference. It's like there's a difference between a cloud, a fog that just sits over your life continually and temporary conviction. So the scriptures talk to us about how there seems to be a difference, according to this scripture, 2 Corinthians 7, that there's a difference between true repentance and self-pity. True repentance. See, real repentance comes after our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus continues, true repentance comes on the foundation of God being our Father. Please, please remember that. True repentance comes on the recognition of who God is. It's very different from self-pity. See, true confession and repentance comes from grasping the love and death and freedom found in Jesus Christ. Everything else is self-pity. See, self-pity is based on a fear of consequences. That you want forgiveness because you want this feeling to lift. That you just want to feel better about yourself. Maybe you have a loss of reputation that you want restored. It's short-term sorrow. And friends, I, I really want to be careful in how I say this, but I really believe this is true. Many times Christians get caught in the trap of self-pity repentance than true repentance. That you feel genuinely bad that something has happened and you come to God and ask for forgiveness. But your motivation, hear me, is not God, the motivation is just that you want freedom from the feelings that you are feeling. That's not true repentance. True repentance is recognizing who God is, coming to Him, not through fear of consequences, but godly repentance is moved by the sight of a tender, loving, heavenly Father. How could I have done something like that to somebody as beautiful as Him? That's true repentance. Where you shift your focus on the consequences of your sin around you and in you, but you put your focus on our Father. Not just wanting the bad feelings to go, not blame shifting, but being moved. Hating the habit and hating the sin because of His sake. Well, because of what he did on the cross, because of who he is, his love and his passion towards us causes us to feel conviction that what we have done is wrong. Because as in a couple of weeks, we're going to focus on what Jesus did on that bloody cross. And it's horrific. It's serious. And it's serious because my sin is serious. This is serious. So when I come to him and I look at the cross... And it shows me that I can say our Father because relationship has been restored because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I look at the cross and it speaks to me about profound love. Incredible acceptance. It tells me how much He loves me. All of God's eternal punishment rested on Him. Substitutionary atonement is what we believe. That all of my sin has been imputed upon Jesus Christ. The Bible says he became a curse because he carried the sin, the shame, the guilt, the mess, the filth of the whole. All those who believe in him rested upon him and it died with him. And then his righteousness, his life, his joy, his freedom, his victory. Not my victory, his victory. The chain broken is imputed upon me in the form of righteousness and justification. That's the gospel. 
And then when I sin, when I sin, when I do something wrong, friends, for those of you who are struggling to know what you truly believe, what do you do with the guilt and the shame? Other than feel self-pity. See, I wonder whether we say, this is how I repay him. The fact that I've not been telling the truth this week, is this how I repay God? See, it takes the focus upon me, myself, and mine, and puts it upon God, our Father. True repentance focuses on a loving and passionate and tender and lovingly heavenly Father. His love and passion towards me makes me want to seek forgiveness. See, the clearer we see the magnitude and the beauty of the gospel, the quicker we run towards the cross. But if you are resistant to confess and ask for forgiveness, what it's doing is revealing a thought process that is not biblical. Because if we truly understood how passionate and loving God was towards us, we would run towards confession, not shield our way from it. A true understanding of the love of God causes his people to run towards him. Friends, those of you who don't know what you believe, don't unsure about Jesus Christ, if you could grasp how much God loves you, you would not leave this building this morning without confessing your sins and coming into a relationship with him. He loves. The clearer we see the magnitude and the beauty of the gospel, the quicker we run towards him. The quicker we run towards confession. Number three, Jesus gives us an ultimate test. Jesus gives us a test as to whether or not you have really been forgiven. Whether you've repented, he gives us a test. Now, I'm going to put a statement upon the screen, and it might surprise you. He says this. Jesus says in this statement in the Lord's Prayer, effectively I'm paraphrasing, but he says this. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Wow. What does that mean? Because everything I believe as a Christian is not based on what I do. It's based on what God does. So how is it that my forgiveness from God is tied somehow in my forgiving other people? Well, here's what he's actually saying is this. I will forgive anyone who repents. But people who don't forgive show that they've stopped repenting. And therefore, they get no forgiveness. Think about it. If we truly live a life of repentance and forgiveness and confession, if we truly come to him looking for that, we will not hold against other people their sins against us. We will be forgiving because we have been forgiven. It's our motivation. Do you see there's a difference? It's very important. My motivation for forgiving somebody is based on the fact that I have been forgiven. Let me put it this way. Let's say I I give you $30 million because I don't have that money, but let's say I do. Let's say you've been given $30 million. You don't deserve it. You've not done anything for it. Somebody just gives it graciously to you. Here you go. Here's your gift, $30 million. And then somebody calls you up and says, hey, about that 20 bucks I owe you, what's your response going to be? Yeah, where's that $20, pal? Would you not more like you go, you know what? I've been given so much. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Forget the 20 bucks. Who cares about the 20 bucks? Do you know what's happened to me? Forgiveness. See, anyone who has come into an unlooked for, undeserved, spontaneous, unearned, gracious wealth 
becomes generous. And see, that's what forgiveness is like. One of the joys of being a Christian a long time is I've had the privilege of being around people who have known Jesus a long time. And I remember as a young adult in my mid-twenties, and I was, uh, Sarah and I had planted a church. We were still kind of fumbling our way around. We weren't too sure about what ministry looked like. And I was very happy and very grateful that God had given me good, often much older men of God into my life that I could spend time with and be encouraged by, and they prayed for me. And, and uh, one of those gentlemen, was his name was Steve Kaner, uh, Stephen Hilda Kaner, just stalwarts of the faith. They're the kind of people that you think after you've had coffee or more likely tea in Britain with them, you're going to go, I feel like I've kind of been in the presence of Jesus, drinking tea with him, because that's what they were like. And I remember one conversation that sticks out more than any other with Steve. So we were talking about offense. Offense. And he said very humbly and very truthfully, and I believed him, he said, you know, Glenn, I can't think of anybody that's ever offended me. In his 70s by that time, I would imagine. I can't think of anybody who's ever offended me. Because then he said, why? why would I allow somebody to offend me when I have been forgiven of so much? How can I hold that against them when Jesus forgave so much? And it stuck with me. I'm not going to hold it against you because I've been forgiven of so much. Now, you might go, Glenn, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what's been done to me, physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually in some churches. You don't understand. When I even just think, if I see that name, if I hear that person's name, everything inside of me, I start to panic. And you know, I would say, yeah, I I don't understand what that looks like. And I would encourage you to go and See Tracy or a counselor. Because that's good. But what do you actually do with that hurt? See, that hurt only gets released, I believe, when you come before the Lord and truly understand what He has gone, how He was abused, how He was hurt. And you find such joy and freedom in that that you're actually able to let go. And by the way, it's not a one-time thing forgiveness for somebody. It's an ongoing process. See, Jesus absorbed the cost, the pain on the cross, and he calls us to also do the same. And I'm not going to stand here and go, yeah, you know, there's condemnation on you if you're feeling unforgiveness towards somebody. But what I am going to say is this, is that I really believe that the more that we focus on the beauty and the joy of the gospel, the less that we focus on the hurt and the pain that's been done to us. So very quickly and finally, there are three things, three practices, if you like, very quickly. When it comes to repentance confession, number one, be specific, not generic. Notice Jesus said debts, not debt. If your Bible says trespasses, might be time to get a different version of the Bible. Because actually trespasses is a one-time kind of trespasses when you... It's an action that happens here and now. You trespass on somebody's property. But a debt is a failure by you to give somebody something they deserve. It's a failure to meet my responsibilities. My responsibilities towards God. 
So he created me. He keeps me alive every second. And I'm dependent on him for every dimension of my being. So when I come to him, it's a good practice to actually list what you know that you did wrong that day or that week or in your life. Be specific. Be specific about it. This is why I find journaling very helpful. I can actually write out, I know I messed up here. Father, forgive me for that. Be specific. Number two, or B, take responsibility. Stop blame shifting. Stop saying, hey, if this didn't happen to me, you actually start looking at yourself through the lens of how God looks at us. So what are our responsibilities? So be specific, but take responsibility. Don't blame shift. And then thirdly, most importantly, I want to leave this picture with you, is remember Abba, not the, not the band. Remember Abba, Papa, Dad, our Father. I'd encourage you this week to meditate and take time in Luke 15 where Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son tells us that there's a father and it's the picture of God himself who loves us even when we sin. He loves you at your worst. He's not in love with a future version of you. He loves you now, on your worst day. He loves you. Good dads love us when we've done something wrong. Good dads don't stop being good dads when you do something wrong. Fathers can't wait to receive us back. And one of my favorite parts of this passage is this, and you may never have noticed this, But the God, the Father, the picture of the Father and the prodigal son doesn't even let his son finish his confession before he wraps his arms around him, kisses him, says, bring me a robe. We're going to party. The son I thought was dead is alive. You see, he doesn't go, oh yeah, keep going. Confess. Yes, let's make you feel bad about this. Condemnation. No, no. The Father's love is uproariously magnificent. The Father's love is invincible. And the Father's love, I've got this on the screen, so I want to soak this into your mind. The Father's love is not based on your perfection and beauty. It's based on His perfection and beauty. It's His love for you. I'll come into communion in just a second. This is the ultimate symbol of of everything I'm talking about this morning, the victory from the sin applied upon Jesus, sorry, uh, transferred from Jesus, imputed from Jesus into our lives as we come to him and we repent, not because we feel bad, but because we recognize we've sinned against a loving father who loves us uproariously. He loves us completely. And I'm believing even now there's some conviction in the room we sin against somebody so perfect and loving as that he's a just God he's a just God and justice was applied upon his son justice for my sin placed upon him father's love is not based on my doing and my perfection and my beauty it's based on his perfection his beauty his love his commitment his sacrifice let's close our eyes